It is. I know we have the NBA betting, but I'm, I'm trying to get compensated. So we're not going to be able to do them daily. But I'm going to come up with rants when they exist in the NBA and the betting space. And I just got to talk about, like, rotations and teams behind the, the eight ball and everything like that. So it's very obvious to me, and if you look at just around the league, what, what the good teams do with the bad teams do, let's just make it really simple, right? So the Celtics lost to Golden State last night. Um, and what I think it examined is, like, obviously Golden State's going to want to send a message. They countered, first of all, kudos to Golden State because most times – if a team is coming off a, um, and you saw this in New Orleans actually a Friday night, um, when a team you know has a bad loss in a playoff series, a finals, a conference finals, even a first round series, etc., and they play each other again, they want they want to show a message, right? So you know the Heat Bulls is a famous one where the Heat knocked off the Bulls um, years ago, and then the the Bull it was opening night and and um, there's a famous you know, meme going around with Alonzo Mourning being like, ah, ah, I guess you're right. Where the, you know, the shrug meme, if you will, like, mm, I guess right. Where the Heat got like shellacked. I don't know. They, they lost by, you know, 30, 40. It was a crazy blowout in Miami, right? Chicago really wanted to send a message, especially opening night. Um, So the message centers happened, right? Friday night, uh, the Pelicans beat down the Suns. The Suns were the team that knocked them out of the playoffs. And, you know, Zion did the windmill, uh, you know, dunk, and everyone was pissed off about it. And, you know, he's trying to send a message. That's what it's about. He, and he said it. He was like, they knocked out my teammates early. You know, you, you got to send them. It's a message sender uh, any time they play. You know, uh, Jordan talks about it with the Jazz, right? Where they're like, hey, we played in the finals. Anytime we play Utah, it's a message. So this theme, you know, reigns on. Um, but unlike those scenarios, the Jazz beat the Bulls, Right. Uh, in the 90s when they played in the regular season a lot because, you know, they lost the finals. They had more vigor uh, in, in the regular season. What's impressive by Golden State, to be honest, is the Celtics are coming in. This is the team that they lost to. Celtics were the better team. They were the better team in the finals, and they were the better team now in the regular season, and they still get shellacked. So Golden State, you know, kudos to them, kudos, where they recognized the um, – the vigor that Boston was going to come into that game and matched it very well, right? Despite having the worst team and despite not playing as well, and it tells you just in general, like these veteran teams versus, you know, some of these younger teams still. That's a, that's a game that, you know, I think just for the Celtics, like identity needed to get. But here's, here's the thick of it. Boston's great play this season. Um, and the reason why they're playing well is a result of a couple things. This is why they played well down the stretch last year. This is why they won the games they did in Golden State in the finals. Al Horford might be one of the most underrated players in the NBA and one of the most important centers of the league. Why? I keep saying this. I'm going to say it to the Cavs. I don't care how often I need to say it. It's In the end of the day, you just got to simplify things sometimes before you, you, you lose out on analysis and, and paralysis. In basketball, there's about there's three components for a, for a team and then individually a player that you assess. Every unit and every team needs to try to have all three things, and that is what? Defensive flexibility. So you can defend on switches. You can defend on you know mismatches, etc. You can defend unique scenarios. Your guards can defend bigs. Your bigs can defend guards. Defensive flexibility, not just defense, right? So not like Rudy Gobert, who uh, defends the rim. That's not enough for me. But... 
if Rudy Gobert is isolated on an island, is that defensive flexibility? Not really. But Kyle Anderson gives them defensive flexibility as an example. So it's not necessarily having the best defenders, but it's having guys who are switchable and can defend as much as possible, one through five, two through four, multiple positions, perimeter and interior. Let's just call it like that. Okay. What makes Cleveland effective is Evan Mobley's defensive flexibility, Jared Allen's defensive flexibility. The reason why those guys are good is they're not disasters when they come out on the perimeter. They're actually quite good defending the perimeter, right? So the component of defensive flexibility is huge, okay? That's one component. You can argue which one's more important. I can argue which one's harder to get. Another component is shot creation. So obviously in a given unit, this is probably the easiest one to get because a lot of players could become shot creators. They were earlier in their careers. If you made the NBA, okay, and you're just like an isolate, even like Sam Hauser, who's the lowest usage, you know, spacer, map honor, and I did my research in the 2000s, similar, right? Just the guy who just, these guys were still able to create a little bit in high school, college. They wouldn't have made the NBA otherwise, right? But that's an extreme. You need NBA level creation, guys who could take guys off the dribble, who could be the handlers in a pick and roll, who, you know, when the shot clock's winding now, can muster offense for themselves or others. So you need shot creators. And then finally, and people argue it's the most important thing, and it's very important, but let's not overpay it, is shooting, okay? Right? You obviously need guys who can space the floor for set shot creators. You need uh, reasons for, for that floor to be spaced so you have a normal-looking offense and have guys running around, and, and which actually helps your defense because now they're, they're exhausted on offense, running around focusing on these on these uh, spacers. Now, with each, you have different categories. So, again, defensive flexibility, as I noted. You know, it's covering the perimeter, covering the interior. That That's the notion of it. The more guys you have that, you're not going to have everyone that does that. You're not even going to have maybe a few guys that do that. But if you have it as a unit that you could do that, that's fair, right? Same thing with shot creation, right? Not everyone does it. But as a unit, you need a couple of guys that could do it. And in those positions that could do it, same thing with space. So, obviously, if you look at it now, if you look at players, you start analyzing players. Unless you have multiple jack-of-all-trades, who are the underrated guys in the NBA, by the way then, you know, looking at players, if a player has one of those as a strength, you don't want to have them as another one as a glaring weakness, right? So basically, better said, as a player, what you're looking to have as roster construction is at least two of three of those elements, right? Or if they could do all three kind of good, that's not bad. But they need to do multiple things good. So the reason why guys like Duncan Robinson were out of Miami's rotation is because they're a disaster defensively, so you, you get killed defensive flexibility. Sure, you get the spacing, you don't even get the shot creation either. So they're not even doing two out of three, right? Evan Fournier, who I don't mind, isn't as much of a disaster defensively. He's definitely weak defensively. And by the way, there's rankings with these as well, and I'll get to that too. But Evan Fournier is, is not good defensively. And, you know, so that's why he's fallen out of New York's rotation. And he's not doing enough shot creation, and he and shot making's good, but again, you have to be elite in, in one out of three, and at least half good than the other. It's not he's okay in, in, in shot making. The percentages say it. Um, he's not a, an extreme spacer, right? Like Duncan Robinson, at least, like when he's roaming around the perimeter, everyone's focused on him. It's kind of like Kyle Korver back in the day. Fine, talk about Anasio. Then within each, there's a ranking. Okay, so you know, analyze a player. You're like, okay, of the three things. You know, am I okay with him being 
the fifth, the fourth in a given unit, the third. Okay. So, you know, for example, like Trey Young, Trey Young, if he's in a unit, he could be your top spacer and your top shot creator. That's really good. He has to be your fifth defensive defensive guy. So now the unit becomes tough. If you have him in a unit, these things all build on each other. They're a domino effect. The unit matters so much. Who you play with matters. If you have Young um, in a unit, and you can't have another guy who's also very weak defensively. So Young's worth it if you have other decent defenders. But like if you have him and you know John Collins in a unit, that's now that unit is very flawed defensively. You can get away with it if you have other defense. You can't have another fifth guy, right? That works with defense. With shot making, it's the same thing, right? If a guy is like not a good shooter and he needs to be your fifth spacer in a unit, you really can't have other non-spacers in that unit who also need to be fit. That's going to make it a lot harder for the rest of the unit. Okay? That's kind of the point. It should be way tougher for the unit. Now, shot making is the same thing. Shot making is kind of the reverse, right? Like, it's not like these other guys can't shot make, but like certain guys need to be, if they're in a unit, need to be the first shot maker, the second shot maker, maybe the third. Where you get into difficulties, you have guys who are, and this is Sadiq Bey, right? Sadiq Bey needs to be the second shot maker in a unit. If he's in a unit and he's third, you can kind of get away with it. But if he's fourth or fifth, that's tough. And if he's with two guys that need to be one, who together are already tough, you're amplifying and making it worse with Sadiq Bay. So everything's kind of interconnected here. I bring that up to mention the prowess of Al Horford. Why? Because Al Horford does all three things. Al Horford can be, like, if you have a guy who can be top three in a unit and all three, that's incredible. And it's very rare. So Al Horford is very effective because he could be a top three shot creator in a unit. He, he does a little offense, guys, right? And he's okay being fourth or even fifth, right? He, the flexibility of him is, is incredible. But he could be a top three shot creator. He has the ability at least to do that. He has the ability to be a top three spacer. Not ideal, but he could be. And then defensive flexibility, absolutely, he's, he's top three. So there's very rare you have guys in the league like that, particularly at the five. And now that allows the rest of Boston's offense to be far more flexible than other units that exist, right? Um, and Boston missing him last night, I'm not saying it's the reason for their loss, but now, you know, it's a domino once he's gone. Now Grant Williams gets that, you know, everyone's kind of elevated to a um, a slot that's a little, you know, more for them. And and that's a big thing. But a lot of Boston's success is, is this sort of, concept that I'm bringing up here where they do extremely well on these three kind of tenements. Defensive flexibility, shock racing, space. Okay? The teams that are terrible don't do well in this. So if you're a team and you're trying to overcompensate for lack of talent by starting two bigs and all these things like Detroit, Charlotte, um, you know, you're not doing anybody justice. And, and those are the teams when you're looking at betting who to wager against and, you know, look at that tenement and look at like, okay, is the rotation now making some sense here, right? Are they playing better as a result? Are guys out that will not allow them to do that consistent rotation 
And it was obviously figuring out whether they're better off or whether they're worse off, right? Atlanta's a lot worse without DeJounte Murray, by the way. Bet against the Hawks all freaking day. They're just not as good with him. Without him, he's good. Because he gives you defensive flexibility and shot creation. And they could afford him being the fourth spacer. And he could be a fourth spacer in a unit. I don't know if he could be fifth, but he's the fourth. And it's fine with Atlanta. It's fine. But it tells you why like the Pistons are a team to look at when they when they run certain rotations. So as long as the Pistons play Bagley, they're going to get screwed. Now, I'm not saying Bagley's bad. But in order to make Bagley good, there's a lot I need to do. Right? And then you got to ask yourself, like, is it worth it? Is it worth, you know, for this talent, crafting the whole scenario just for his benefit? And I'm going to argue for a guy like Marvin Backley, so let's explain it, right? Marvin Backley could be good in the following scenario. He needs to be a top three usage guy in the scenario, right? So that means he's got to play with maybe second, second most usage. Okay, let's check. He needs to have two spacers with him so that he could have that usage and have space. So let's say, okay, I got Ivy, Bagley, Bogey, Burks. Cool. You know, then, because I already have, I, I probably, you know, I have him with Beef Stew there. Great. Now, is that unit, that's the best unit for Bagley. And that's probably the only successful unit. Is that worth, is that unit worth it at the risk of some of these other units? That means if I'm playing Bagley there, like, Bagley's good there. Am I better off with Sadiq Bay there? Okay. Am I better off without Bagley and with Cade there? Right? Like, just because it's Bagley's best unit, and that unit could be okay, you have to not start thinking long-term, like, what am I sacrificing by overcompensating that unit? And is that worth it for the rest of my roster construction? So the Pistons case, I would say no, right? Because... I think Bagley is lower on the totem pole. I think he's behind. If he's going to be the second usage guy, he's behind Bay, Cade, uh, Hayes. Like, he's behind a lot of guys. And then it's like, okay, well, if I said, you know, bye-bye to Bagley, is that a hard role to fill in? Well, yeah, you already have it. It was Sadiq Bay. And by the way, if you want to get it again, you can. Like a four that can create a little bit when you're talking about, like, Fat Young. Those guys are not hard to get. They're on the waiver wire. So don't overcompensate and just like, you know, sign the guy and then double down with all these issues because he signed. It's really obvious to tell the NBA, the smart teams, the not so smart teams that understand this tenement, um, these three kind of rules and just align with it. The management that doesn't see that is just going to be far behind. The fans are going to suffer. Right. And, you know, and sometimes, too, you have to have a self-realization as a franchise and cut bait sooner rather than later. That's another thing, right? We're like, you know, teams have this thing where they, they, you know, it's like any, there was a whole irrational exuberance, right? And there's a concept in that book, which is a finance book, like doubling or tripling down. Same thing happens in poker, right? Like if you put more money in the hand, you're what's called pot committed. And then you're more likely to make kind of a, a silly mistake and not think of the odds. So like if you're a team like the Wolves or the Hawks are the classic examples, the Wolves, where you 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 did, there was so much investment you did in Carl Anthony Towns, right? You drafted him number one. There was an investment there, and then you did trades around him. You brought in Russell. There was an investment there. You lost the pick in that deal, 
to to accommodate him, basically. Okay, um, and then you sign him with Supermax, and then you're like, you know, he's got defensive weaknesses. So we get it. How about Gobert? And that was a crazy high uh, move to kind of um, accommodate and overcompensate when really the issue's been there all along, and it's him. Just get rid of the issue. And Carl Anthony Towns is the anti-Horford, right? He's a guy that spaces. He puts up artificial numbers. He's got to be your fifth. He's got to be your worst defender in a unit, which is already a problem. And he's not give, He's not making up for, for an offense. And he, at least Trey Young is excellent in shot creation and spacing, where Carl Anthony Towns is not. And that's the concern. That's where you look up at these teams. That's how we identify the bad teams versus the good teams. That's sort of the math here, right? And look, kudos to the teams that can figure it out and the teams that can't. It's going to be a long season. And look, we shall see what happens with this, but but that's my rant for this morning.